power on. By that time, I have something to say. How long before the Hulk and prediction of galactic revolt is realized? Approximately 240 years. The inevitable outcome? The Empire shall be overthrown, of course. The logic of waste, Mr. Spark. The waste of lives, potential, resources, time. I submit to you that your empire is illogical because it cannot endure. I submit that you are illogical to be a willing part of it. You have one minute and 23 seconds. If change is inevitable, predictable, beneficial, doesn't logic demand that you be a part of it? One man cannot summon the future. But one man can change the present. Be the captain of this enterprise, Mr. Spark. Find a logical reason for sparing the Hawkins and make it stick. Push till it gives. You can defend yourself better than any man in the fleet. Captain, get in the chamber! What about it, Spock? A man must also have the power. In my cabin is a device that will make you invincible. Indeed. What will it be? Past or future? Tyranny or freedom? It's up to you. time in every revolution there's one man with a vision captain kirk i shall consider it Accessing historical database. Year 2020. The tech giants become aware of the greatest threat to their corporatist domination. An obscure science and tech podcast becomes a major factor in a peaceful open source revolt against the military Silicon Valley industrial complex. The podcast, Sovereign Tech. Its host, Dr. Brian Sovereign. The tech giants try to stop Sovereign Tech. They can't. Let's end off 2020 with the hottest and wildest tech show in the planet today, baby. (laughs) Woo! Uh, Actually, you know, for me, it's actually the year 5781, but... Never mind. That's a that's a Jew joke. Don't worry. <laughs> uh, but we are on the the last episode of Sovereign Tech for the year, and I assure you, we're going to end it with a doozy, baby. Uh, we have a lot to get into for the foreplay, so I really want to just jump right into it. Uh, we have, uh, uh, to me, a surprising, really mind blowing main story that has to do with the Linux foundation. Ultimately, even though it has a much, has much broader ramifications, got a hell of a hack sec to get into. And really after we get through all of that, 
we'll see what time we have left to get into anything else. Uh, but 2020, what a year. I know <laughs> I'm far from the only person to say this sort of thing, uh, but I am just as happy as I'm sure as everyone else to see 2021 roll in. And of course, as I have been saying over the past few weeks, I assure you that 2021 is going to be an incredibly exciting year for the man of tomorrow for sovereign tech. And that means ultimately, whoo, hopefully you think so for you. And, but of course, for some people, 2020 was really a banner year. Uh, and well, there's a conversation certainly to have around that. Uh, and I, well, we'll get into some of that, but I want to open this up probably with the company that I would say has benefited the most, if not in dollar signs, exactly, perhaps in percentages, um, percentages in a lot of different metrics, not just profitability or, or, uh, scaling up, uh, as far as uh, business size, but also in user base. And you got to imagine that I'm talking about none other than zoom, uh, the video conferencing software. Now, you know, every time that I've read and, and there's a development here, that's why we're going to talk about it. Uh, in fact, I think, who, did I, did I see some news outlets calling zoom like company of the year or something? It's fucking unbelievable. It's especially since they misstepped so many times this year. I mean, over and over and over again, they just kept fucking up and making things worse ultimately. But again, we'll talk about it. Uh, I, I always find it amazing when I'm reading about zoom, how most journalists will preface it with saying before 2020, nobody had really heard of zoom. I kind of find that hard to believe. And I sort of feel like that's some kind of like weird marketing messaging, uh, because most people that I knew, and, and it's not like I just run in tech circles or something. In fact, you know, based upon the, the work that I do and clients that I have and everything, it's quite the opposite. I'm there because I am the tech expert and they are not, but most of them have, you know, had heard of zoom. Uh, I, I have been using zoom and I had been using it with people. I mean, the people that introduced me into to zoom years ago were far from, from, you know, tech savvy. Uh, so anyway, I, I just, I, I don't really understand that. Certainly though, zoom has seen a massive increase in user base, uh, and of course in bandwidth overall, uh, throughout 2020. Now what's interesting is there are, uh, it, we'll say it's, it's a little more than rumor, but it's coming from people who are, the information was reporting on this, uh, that's an outlet by the way. And this is coming from people close to the CEO for zoom, that being Eric Yuan, uh, that zoom is working on, and there's not a whole ton of clarity on what exactly this means but we can guess, but that zoom is actually working on email and calendar apps. Now here's the rub. Okay. Now we know that the, the email is a web client. There's not a lot of clarity. If that means that they're just making a, an email app that you can use and plug in your Gmail or G suite or whatever into, or if they're literally creating a whole other email service, um, I'll say this, I mean, doing a calendar thing isn't one would assume if they're also doing a calendar app, that that would be tied in with the email. And so that they would be independent of any other company. 
Um, that's, that's the read that I'm getting out of this is that they are creating their own, basically their own email service, not just an app, but their own email service and tying that in with a calendar service. Uh, that makes frankly, all the sense in the world. I'm not saying it's a good thing because again, zoom has misstepped over and over again, but I do think that there, there's some speculation that can be made here, um, as to what this would look like and what this could mean in the, shall we say the, the tech world in general, uh, ultimately what I think this can mean and why I even bother to bring it up is that we could end up with a seventh tech giant. Um, right now, you know, on sovereign tech, we always talk about the sinister six, right? Which would be Samsung, Apple, Microsoft, Facebook, Amazon. Um, and who, who am I forgetting there? <laughs> I know, I know there's somebody on for, Oh, Google. How could you forget Google? Well, in our wildest dreams, we'd love to forget uh, Google, but regardless, those are your sinister six zoom could really become number seven. And that's not to say there aren't other tech giants. Uh, you know, certainly uh, one could argue that IBM is a tech giant and actually we might end up talking about IBM a little bit later on, but zoom again has had a banner year for 2020. And so you know, Zoom ended up really by the end of this year, ended up becoming a, you know, that, that rare thing, for example, that Google ended up becoming years ago, they became uh, a verb and you know, the name of the company itself became a verb or at least a Zoom call, like became the standard way of referencing having a, a video call which is a term that never really seemed to take off. Uh, but zoom call, you know, even if you're not using zoom people now, it seems pretty clear, you know, still call it a zoom call. If you're just talking about like a video call, uh, it's amazing that say like Skype or Google duo, uh, and, and some others did not which were already there and potentially could have avoided some of the bandwidth struggles. Uh, that they did not become like really dominant players in this and zoom just kind of took over out of nowhere. And I know part of that is because the, the size of the, of the calls that, that you could have on zoom by its, you know, by its nature, which before the massive increase in user base zoom could handle very easily. Um, so I, I get that, how, how that ended up, ended up becoming a thing, but they are really, I mean, with the, with the user base that exists, the fact that they, basically completely sidestepped all of Microsoft, Google's and Apple's plans for dominating in education. Zoom just sidestepped those whole processes and, and all of those carefully laid plans. Right. And now they're an absolutely dominant force in education. So here's, here's, here's what I'm getting at is that zoom is a dominant player in video conferencing, which is a huge deal right now during the pandemic. They have a very real foothold in education as well as business, frankly. Um, I mean, even, you know, plenty of clients, uh, that, that I, you know, basically I've seen so many businesses where their primary mode of communication quickly shifted, uh, to zoom bottom line. So you have that, okay. You have enterprise and education that they've become an incredibly dominant force in. Uh, add in that they have become a verb and yeah, I mean, they're, they're becoming a tech giant in incredibly short order. Now I think not, not that I want another tech giant and I don't like zoom as software, as a company, as et cetera. 
Okay. Now they've gone to great lengths or appeared apparent great lengths to try and double down on their security policies and implementations. Um, of course they ended up buying out key base, uh, you know, and so on. I could see, because you're probably thinking, okay, so they have this position, but then where do they grow from here? Right. I mean, you can, you know, you get everybody using their video conference software. Sure. That's great. But then you're not exactly, uh, uh, continuing the, what seems to be the Silicon Valley mantra of a never ending or everlasting growth, right? Where the growth just never seems to stop. Well, email and a calendar part and parcel, I think are, you know, a, a no brainer for them to go. I don't want it to exist. Don't confuse me. I'm just saying that from a business perspective, okay, from a conventional Silicon Valley perspective, this is a genius move. And I could see them actually becoming the de facto and dominant player in both email and calendar. And I know what you're thinking. You're saying no, there's no way somebody's going to take out Gmail, not a chance. Well, certainly zoom could engage in some clever marketing if they wanted to, and, you know, bring around concerns about Google's, you know, Gmail down and everything, but you don't necessarily want to kick a person while there's down while they're down. And Google could certainly bat right back at them and say, well, how about all the horse shit you pulled off in 2020 zoom? Um, but here's the thing, considering that Zoom did buy Keybase, that Zoom has been spending so much money, at least in lip service, around encryption, okay, you know, and around security overall, if they created a, and I know, I know Gmail kind of has this feature, you know, even though it's, it's not super widespread, but it, it's, it's been slowly rolling out, but if they could come out with a really, really slick, uh, encrypted email service, you know, that worked nicely with standard email. I could see a lot of businesses and schools really like jumping on board with this. Of course, I would imagine it to have a backdoor. I don't imagine them actually using like PGP, right? I imagine them rolling their own, which should scare anyone, but the average person is going to say, oh, well, oh, this is great. It's end-to-end -end encrypted or it's, you know, what, whatever the encryption looks like, uh, it's going to be encrypted email. And if it's free and if it, you know, ties in so easily with zoom calls, uh, I mean, I, I just, I think it's an instant winner. And again, if they go that route of, you know, talking up the security where they're and, and apparently th th that is, that has been in the, like what the information was reporting, uh, from people at zoom was that it would be a next gen, uh, email service, you know, or email client. And next gen has to, you know, you've got, yes, there's a lot of very simple chat features and everything to include in there. Um, but that really, I think has to include security, uh, as a baseline. So I, if that happens and if they pull that off by default, um, yeah, I could see a lot of people switching over to that and I don't blame them. You know, I mean, I'd rather they go to proton mail or something, but I don't blame them for wanting to go that direction, especially if it's free or if there are like, you know, and it's easy enough to put premium tiers on certain features with that. Uh, in fact, really, because then where do you go? Right. It's like, okay, we get everybody on our, in our email. We get everybody using our calendar. We got everybody using our video conferencing stuff. I think they could go all the way. They could take on G suite and Microsoft 365 easily, and they could start putting out office apps. Like they, they could buy, I don't know, WPS office or something like that. Um, they could, you know, and from there 
Hell, they could even do social media if they wanted to. And like more encrypted text messaging. I mean, once you get people in your video conferencing and, and email, you know, then you just build off from that and you can get people into these things. And considering the not so banner year that Facebook, Twitter, and most social media players are having, I think Zoom would be a fool to not come out with what is ultimately their own, uh, you know, th their own social media service for whatever, you know, that, that would take shape as. Um, and if they put security and, you know, I'm certainly there is a group of people that would be really hot about it, having a, a freedom of speech, uh, angle, uh, you know, include that in. And yeah, I think you'll get people just, just, I mean, they would just run over to zoom and overnight or within a year, another year. Anyway, zoom could be bigger than Facebook in my opinion. Now it's not an interesting to note. And in fact, I mean, this is all over. And of course all the show notes. Well, they're in the show notes, <laughs> all the links are there, uh, because I mean, we have stories that basically play one play off of one after the other here. And it's not uninteresting that really, you know, because before you say, well, why would zoom go into social media? That doesn't make sense. It's not uninteresting to consider that most social media platforms are effectively going after zoom. How is this happening? Well, of all things, not that this is necessarily a surprise, but Twitter is, and we've got a couple of these kinds of stories to talk about, but Twitter is now testing. And this is a low level test, meaning that it's probably only on iOS and maybe it's only a few people within that. Um, but Twitter right now is testing uh, audio chat rooms that they call spaces. Now, of course, Twitter has had a year where they've been introducing, you know, new features like they had that horseshit fleets, whatever. And actually on iOS, in fact, my, my Twitter app on my iPod touch does have this. Um, where you can do voice tweets, but this is completely different. This is what they're calling spaces, which is basically a, it's just what it says, an audio chat room where you can go, you know, a host, you know, whatever Twitter user uh, can set this up and people can come in and they can just randomly talk to each other. Slack was all is also testing this uh, feature where, you know, you can kind of, where it's supposed to emulate as if you were yelling across to the next cubicle. Right. And you're having a conversation, um, at work, basically all of every other tech giant out there, not that Slack is necessarily a tech giant, but you know, it's certainly integral to a lot of businesses. Uh, all, all the other tech giants are trying to copies zoom or trying to copy zooms game or get in on zooms demo basically. Okay. Uh, also, so Twitter's got that coming. Do I think that that's going to take off? I, I don't imagine so other than a lot of people are really running away from Facebook and Facebook entirely. Like they're even running away from Instagram, which, you know, if you're going to run away from, from Facebook, you know, you got to run away from WhatsApp, Instagram, and Facebook. Like, I mean, it's not just Facebook proper that you, you know, if you're concerned about the ethics or the, the, uh, the ethical actions, yeah, I guess if you're concerned around the ethics of Facebook as a company, you've got to get away from all of those. Uh, most people I think can actually get away from two of those. It's the WhatsApp part that a lot of people I don't know would necessarily run, uh, you know, would run away from. So I don't think it's too much of a shock at this stage in 2020 that Twitter is adding on such, you know, a, a feature that seems so anathema to what makes Twitter popular. But because I think a lot of people are influxing to Twitter uh, 
Um, I mean, for varying reasons, not just to get away from Facebook, not just to have another social media platform, but for a lot of people, it's where they get their news. I mean, and just look how much, you know, television networks, uh, be it the Discovery Channel or CNN or whatever, you know, are implementing tweets as part of their, you know, programming cycle within their shows. I mean, that's incredibly commonplace. So you have a lot of people going there for that. And, you know, again, for their news and everything. So Twitter wanting to expand quite a bit, uh, not a surprise, of course, considering that I think minus, you know, the solar winds situation, um, which that's something I'm still, Microsoft has come out with some pretty interesting revelations around that. Um, but we're still not going to do a full breakdown yet on this show. There are plenty of other shows out there that already are on top of it by the minute. And I certainly recommend listening to them. For example, my favorite podcast security. Now for me, story of the year in 2020 was not even COVID. It was the Twitter hack that occurred. I mean that, and, and I covered it uh, over at least a couple of episodes. It was insane. Um, and so, you know, everybody jumping to get a Twitter account, I'm not recommending doing that. And again, I don't necessarily, I don't know that this is going to take off, right? Because I think most people, when you, when you're going to Twitter, there is a way that you want to interact with it. And I cannot imagine like fleets and all this other stuff. The only reason people are even using those is it's because it's similar content often enough to what they are doing on say Instagram or whatever else. But I don't see anyone making really original content based upon new features within Twitter itself. So I don't know that that's really going to take off. Uh, but that said, Twitter's not the only one getting into this game. Ironically, and we have to talk about, uh, we have some other aspects to talk about this further on in the foreplay here. Telegram is adding in uh, voice chat. Not, not just, I mean, they've had voice calls for a while, but they are adding in voice group chat. Now this is a feature that I am going to be exploring and seeing what we can do as far as with the sovereign tech polytechnic group. Is it something that I can use to do Q and a shows, you know, to do, to do a live show, which uh, I really miss doing those. And I think in 2021, we should be picking these back up. Um, I'm looking into that, how that would work because telegram is like, you know, it, it's the app that I can, I can stomach right? <laughs> More so than any of these other ones. Um, I don't know that Twitter spaces, Hey, we don't even know whenever it would come to say Android or even broader iOS usage. So I wouldn't want to count on that, but for telegram it's here. Uh, and it's interesting that it got announced just before Pavel Durov came out and announced that telegram is going to be going to a premium model. Now relax, breathe. Any feature that telegram has had up to this point and there hasn't been any added since the announcement. Okay. And the announcement was just a you know week ago, December 23rd, I think was when the official announcement dropped. Um, any feature that telegram has right now will be free. will always be free. Telegram accounts will be free. Okay. They don't cost you anything other than, you know, you still have the requirement for a phone number. Hopefully that will change at, you know, at some point because we hate having to use telephone numbers. That's part of the problem with signal. Now, before anybody freaks out, okay. About, Oh, it, telegram's going to pay for it. Let's get off of it. That that's worthless. Um, I mean, telegram sits in a weird position between like messaging app and social media app, because it's, it's a little more than a messaging app, but then it's also, you know, it's just missing that one damn Facebook feature of like group and group threading, right? I mean, it has groups, but it doesn't have the group threading and blah, blah, blah. If only it did. <laughs> uh, anyway, 
that's not exactly what's going on. So, and the, there's another part to this that more people are getting concerned about. One thing to understand, and we have talked about this is I have espoused the use of telegram for years on this show is that Pavel Durov, of course, who made his millions off of VK, who he is an anarchist, by the way, let's keep that in perspective, which is much better than can be said for probably just about anyone else running any kind of, uh, you know, social platform media or otherwise, you know, I mean, certainly I don't think the guys running me, we are anarchists of any kind, uh, you know, fuck that stuff. But anyway, and it's a horrible name to begin with, <laughs> so, but, uh, but Pavel Durov, he's been self-funding this whole thing for years. Now, a lot of people have raised concerns around that. It's like, wait, how is he running such a, you know, powerful messaging platform with, uh, you know, hundreds of millions of users and all with his own money? Like, you sure he's not selling off the data somehow, something like that. And, and regardless around the encryption concerns of telegram, um, I mean, I believe that he was. Uh, you know, run, funding it with his own money. And I think that, you know, when we've talked about this throughout 2020 as well, uh, you know, they were planning on doing a blockchain project, right? With the ton. And that was probably supposed to help fund all of this. That was depending upon how you want to look at it, wasn't allowed to take off or just, you know, didn't, didn't get off the ground for varying reasons. When that happened. Okay. Uh, I think that's when they started to say, okay, we're going to do this now. They are also, while there is a, and we don't know the, the dollars and cents of this, like what does a premium, uh, you know, account cost or a premium subscription cost or whatever, uh, they are looking to aim the premium features at not, un, not uninterestingly, similar to zoom, right. You know, at looking at enterprise as well as, um, you know, power users, would I pay for telegram? I suppose that's a question to ask here. Absolutely. If we're talking $5 a month or something like that, I totally would. I'd do it just out of the, uh, you know, I don't want to say that I don't want to use the term kindness of my heart, but from that angle, like I do that because I'm so glad that this exists. Telegram is so helpful and it's so meaningful and enriching for so many people, uh, just in the sovereign tech audience alone, you know, let alone, uh, you know, how much I have really used it over the years and, and, and oftentimes relied on it. So just like I'd never want to use a free VPN, you know, I'm more than happy. And, and I've been espousing, you know, like, Hey, let's actually have these services where we pay for them. That way we're not the product, right? Because our data is getting sold off. Let's do that. Um, you know, I, I've been in that mindset for a long time that none of this shit should be free in the first place or, okay. I shouldn't put it that way, but the alternative model should not be selling of my data for using a service, right? Not necessarily that everything couldn't be free or that messaging services couldn't be free. There's certainly, there's alternative methods besides subscription models, uh, you know, or premium models to handle that sort of thing. But you get where, I, where I'm going with this. Regardless, uh, Telegram is not only adding in these premium features, which we don't exactly know what all those are. And I'm sure they're going to be, I mean, because kudos to Telegram, they have constantly been innovating new features, right? Uh, Signal has kind of stepped up its game this year as well, including group video calls, right? You know, again, everybody's, everybody knows that Zoom is probably going to become the next big thing. And so everybody's trying to take it on here. Um, Telegram will also be including only in channels and maybe certain types of groups. Like if, if it's a group I, I, it, right now, it just sounds like it's only channels, but groups like say the Sovereign Tech Polytechnic, or your personal 
uh, chats will not have ads in them apparently ever. Okay. There's no such thing as never in, <laughs> in, in Silicon Valley, but you get my point. Uh, but in more public channels, there will be an ad platform that exists within that. However, what's interesting within this before you say, oh no, I'm getting ads. And I thought we'd never get ads. Aha. But, and this is what makes it a little more acceptable to me is that the ads will ultimately, you know, like part of the, the, uh, the profits made from ads, you know, from the impressions will also go to the channel owner. Um, you know, similar to what YouTube had done before YouTube basically fucked over everybody with ads. Uh, I mean, that's not a bad way to go, you know? So how telegram is looking to do this. I understand. I believe that they need to get some funding in that they need to, you know, make some changes here, uh, to keep functioning. In fact, I mean, I've been sweating a little bit because it, it seems I, maybe it's just the Android app. I don't know. Uh, or no, cause I've seen it on the desktop app as well, where it feels like there have been bandwidth issues. Not a surprise in 2020, but there have been some bandwidth issues. I don't know if that has anything to do with funding, whatever, um, but they got to make this happen fast. Um, I'm definitely going to jump on it. I think anybody that uses Telegram with any regularity, I would beseech you. And I'm look, Telegram's not a sponsor. I'm just saying I know how helpful they are for not just a crypto community as in cryptocurrencies, but crypto in general, because crypto should be seen as a much larger, broader thing than just Bitcoin, right? It should also include, you know, uh, PGP and uh, I mean, a whole slew of other things. Um, I know how beneficial it's been and continues to be, uh, and how it really is very much a last bastion away from, you know, social media platforms that are ultimately detrimental, you know, to, to your mentality and let alone your privacy. And they have some other monetizing ideas like pay for stickers and other things. And, you know, I mean, frankly, I just, I wish telegram the absolute best. I really do. And I hope that this is successful for them. Um, the amount of features that they have put out there completely for free with no ads is remarkable and very confidence, uh, uh, inducing, <laughs> not just boosting, but inducing. Uh, so we'll see. I don't see this as a bad thing. You know, and, and there's nothing here. I mean, there's some fuzzy language, I suppose, on what things will actually look like. But what we do know looks ultimately fine to me. Um, we do have to see what the ads will look like in the channels and how all of that will exactly work. But one thing that Telegram has been is incredibly open, uh, you know, very, very honest which is more than we can say for most companies. Now I want to move on from that. Okay. We we've, we've talked about that, that that's coming, that that's happening and that ultimately I see it as a, as a good thing. Um, and I look forward to whatever those, those premium features are. Uh, I, I mean the, the number one feature that and I think everybody's screaming for this give groups like, I mean, cause they, they did it in channels on telegram where you can comment on a post specifically within channels, have that functionality within groups, something that, that comes close at least to emulating threaded conversations like Facebook groups has, and there's your real Facebook killer. Don't even need zoom. There's your real Facebook killer. Uh, you know, and they're probably, they're probably going to get into more video calls and things. I mean, you know, I can see all this coming down the line. Uh, I mean, they're, they're already kind of there, but anyway, again, I'm looking forward to it, uh, whatever they have in mind. 
So moving on to the next story, there's so many stories, like I said, <laughs> I knew that we'd have to get to in the foreplay here. Um, let's get into a couple of bits that play off of previous conversations that has to do with the very controversial and still much discussed, uh, COVID-19, uh, bill, which has, or the relief bill, which as I understand it has been signed passed, you know, people are getting $600 checks and all this that's going on, but a couple of points. So one of them is something that Rob and I actually discussed on the latest episode of TIE fighter renegades is that episode 42, I think. Um, and in that we were talking about how in the bill somehow just like it's, it's a 5,500 page bill, which I don't know if I need to spend all the time in the world talking around the, like the, the political issues of that because fuck politics, but you know, there's no way you can read that in a week. Right. I mean, just imagine, imagine reading, I mean like uh, the greatest novel, I don't know, take your pick, uh, Dune or something. Right. And what are you going to, you max out what a thousand pages. I don't know. Maybe you're reading battlefield earth or something, right. And that's, I don't know, 12, 1400 pages or something like that. How long does it take you to read that book? Now imagine a 5,500 page bill. You're going to be able to get through that in a week, in a month, you know, while you're actually supposedly doing your fucking job, even if even reading bills kind of is your job, there's, I'm sure there's plenty of other things they're supposed to be doing. It's madness. So anyway, you know, we, we, Rob and I talked about this, how they're just jamming stuff in. I, I implore you to go back and listen to that, but to, I, there was a request in the telegram group to discuss, you know, a little bit, all right, you know, considering the streaming wars going on right now and all the horseshit with that. Uh, a lot of people are still torrenting heavy, you know, is there some kind of ramifications because of, um, you know, the, the piracy, uh, or the anti-piracy measures that were put into the COVID-19 relief bill. I'll be really quick on it here and just give you like, give you a rehash on this. So basically there is a, it is a $10,000 fine. Um, and I think ultimately we'll end up with jail time. If you are a for profit pirate streamer, not if you're downloading movies or downloading the latest episode of the Mandalorian or something, and you're, you know, you're torrenting it. Okay. You're not the target, at least within the specific wording of this part of the COVID-19 relief bill. Okay. Uh, the only people who are the target are not, not even like pirate Bay theoretically isn't even like a target here. Uh, you know, whatever one or 1337 X isn't the target here. Okay. Like go down the list. Those are not the target. The target here are more things that say play with Cody where, um, again, where, where it's streaming. Okay. That's anybody that's doing a, a, and, and again, the for profit part is where things get murky. Because what does for profit mean? Does it mean when you go to a website and watch a stream there and the ads there's, there's ads, which most people who I hope torrent are also avid users of, uh, of ad blockers, you know, but just saying <laughs> to, to put a stop to those, but yeah. So whatever qualifies as for profit is that that's the murky part, but it specifically has to do with for profit streaming. Okay. Uh, I don't, according to the language, it doesn't look like torrenting itself qualifies as streaming unless it's like a client where client is in software, unless it's software where 
well, there's certain torrenting software that will actually will download, say, a movie or show sequentially so that you can watch it as it's actually downloading. And it's kind of an odd hybrid of torrenting and streaming, right? And I imagine that would fall under this. So you probably want to stick away from that. Um, I mean, you know, I actually, I had somebody ask, I mean, just to give some like more original info here. Um, I had somebody ask me a while back, it was in for, for, uh, for the Q and a segment of the show. And I never got to the question, but they, they asked me, you know, why don't you just use services that just stream say the movie, uh, you know, as you download it. And I mean, talking about these sorts of, these sorts of apps, or, you know, why don't you use Cody and just tie in some streams and all this other stuff. I mean, and, and, and I'm oversimplifying the question, but the reason I do, and I do, I torrent. Okay. I also have a gigantic Blu-ray collection. Okay. So Hollywood, you know, (laughs) cool your balls because I mean, you, you get, whether I like it or not, you get plenty of money out of me. I mean, you get plenty. All right. And you've gotten plenty, especially over the years. Um, so, you know, but I do torrent still and because sometimes you just have to, you know, uh, for, for varying reasons that, you know, even circumvent any legal issues. Uh, there's just reasons why when you want certain content, it's just the only way you're going to get it. So a, I like to, I like to own my shit. There's that, you know, I don't like to rely. I mean, I, I have massive hard drives sitting next to me, chock full of stuff. Um, because I don't trust a single fucking company out there with my data, you know, whether, and, and that goes from, you know, what I type out to somebody, let alone, uh, you know, a movie file of some kind or music files or whatever, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm, a, I'm, I have a, a very impressive looking and I know because I put in the time, uh, a pretty impressive looking Plex library. Okay. I mean, that's just, that's how I roll. Now I roll that way because, uh, I feel like any, a lot of like, even, even a lot of these pirate boxes, like these pirate Cody boxes, they get, that are pre-programmed and everything that you can buy, which are, I mean, these guys, the people who put these things together are brilliant. They do great work. I'm not knocking them necessarily. Okay. Uh, the, the pirate streamers, they clearly do brilliant work. And I mean, are, you know, I, I applaud them. You understand. Okay. But both of those, you know, the, the hardware makers, et cetera. I mean, because it's, it's like very specific hardware because the streams, you know, are coming from very, they're pulling from very specific, uh, we'll call them nodes, but really servers and so on. They, to my mind, they are a central point of failure. It is not, you know, this kind of like pirate streaming from basically from server to hardware, uh, especially if you're getting like specific hardware, I should say it's, it's not a decentralized solution. It's not something where I feel really comfortable. And I feel like it's always just, a it, it's, it's an endless arms race. It's always just a matter of time before somebody goes after them. I mean, and that's exactly what's happening here with this COVID-19 relief bill, which again, it's outrageous that it's in a relief bill for COVID-19. What does this have anything to do with, you know, with COVID-19 again, listen to Rob and I talk about it. Cause we lay it all out. In fact, Rob actually had another great solution too. Uh, that he mentioned off air and we didn't get to get it in um, on air, but he was saying, he's like, you know what? He says, everybody, like you get a few people that, that will pay for whatever streaming service. And then they just share their credentials as far as they can go. And obviously that's been happening for a while because that's why Netflix, Disney plus, and other companies put uh, like restrictions on 
how many uh, devices can access one account. But I still think, you know, that that's an alternative uh, to go with as well. There's really, I mean, there's a very, and maybe it's something we can get into in 2021. Um, because, because ironically, you know, the, these companies get to such a size, they basically start, start eating themselves from the inside. And you have, you know, the people, the, the, the bulk of the people that work in these companies are people, shall we say, quote unquote, just like you and me, you know, they're trying to get the best deal, get a little joy out of life, you know, all of that, right. They're your average folks and they don't mind screwing over their own company. <laughs> and, and there's a big conversation to, have to, to be had around that, but they, they know, you know, they know that this stuff goes on and they like it and probably fuck, they even do it themselves. And you say to me, well, stallion, you know, if, if, if we don't pay for this stuff, then we don't get the Mandalorian. Okay. A, you're always going to have the dum-dums and they're always going to be greater in number and they're going to pay and you know, they're going to eat shit and grin about it. Okay. B <laughs> regardless of that, um, you know, if, if no more new TV shows or, or movies got made, so what <laughs> I still have so many that have come out over the past, you know, half century that I know even I haven't watched and you know how much shit I've consumed. Uh, we've got enough. <laughs> we've got enough for lifetimes and lifetimes and lifetimes. I have more games. Literally, literally, you could do, you could do the math. You I'm not, this isn't an exaggeration. You could do the math. I could not play all of the games that I own between steam and varying consoles and everything else. And I could show you and you could count up. Okay. How long does it take an average time to beat this game, this game, this game. And if you added it all up, it would literally take me at least three lifetimes. If I live to be, you know, 80 or 90, which I mean, I'm going to live forever, thankfully, but you know, it would take you three lifetimes to be able to, to finish those. And that's doing nothing else. Cause you know, a lot of these games are meant to be played for fuck a hundred hours now. It's insane. So it's not like there's a lack of content, right? <laughs> At all. But that's besides the point. Um, so basically, you know, you're never safe when you're doing something that certainly has the ire of the MPAA and whatever other stupid entertainment organization out there. Uh, but you know, if you're doing like me where, yeah, you've got your, you know, private internet access VPN and, you know, you're just kind of rocking, uh, you know, every once in a while, there's something new that you want to check out or whatever, or try before you buy, whatever the case may be. Um, you know, if you're using that and, you know, just doing your due diligence with trying to encrypt stuff. Now, not, I mean, yeah, they're not, they're not looking for you. They're not coming after you. They're basically, I mean, because you gotta, you gotta understand what I think their mindset is. Okay. And that, that being the entertainment companies, that being Netflix, Disney plus, you know, all Hulu, all of them. Okay. You gotta understand their mindset. It's interesting that they're specifically targeting streamers. The reason they, that they're specifically targeting streamers is because what ultimately killed or made the pirate Bay less viable, say that made a lot of torrent sites less viable. Wasn't that they were getting shut down because some of them like the pirate Bay have never really been shut down. Not really, you know, temporarily at times. Sure. But then they come back, you know, it's like a New York cockroach and it's wonderful. What they're really, and, and the, what, what ultimately like put an end to torrentings, like really, you know, dominance, shall we say of, of the sharing of entertainment over the internet. 
even though torrenting gets used for a whole lot more. Okay. But regardless was really the ease of use of streaming services. That's what did it. Like when Netflix became just so damn convenient, that's what ultimately quote unquote killed torrenting. I mean, it never really died, but you know what I mean? That's what made it like less of a viable or less of an attractive option to most people. So if piracy is going the way of convenience now with their own streaming, now these companies are scared to death and they're going to do something about it and not let it grow and fester until it becomes a beast that they can't tame. Like what happened with the pirate Bay, you know, and torrenting in general. So that that's what they're going after. Okay. They just want to put a stop to the convenience because they know as long as the convenience isn't there, the dum dums will still, and, and most people will still pay into uh, Netflix and, you know, and whoever else. Okay. So you're not really the target here. I mean, you could say, yeah, you always got to be careful and you do, and you always want to encrypt your stuff. You want to fucking encrypt everything. I mean, that's just common sense. Doesn't matter if it's considered illegal in your region or not. Uh, but, but that, that, that's who they're going after. So, you know, if you're under this concern of the COVID-19 relief bill, you're fine. If you're just somebody who downloads shit every once in a while, you know, no big deal. And it's not like you're streaming it out to everybody. Okay. Again, it's only streamers for profit that they're going after. But again, Rob and I had another conversation about this. I definitely recommend listening to that. It's in the latter half of TIE Fighter Renegades. It's there for you. Now, this next story in the foreplay, and we still got a couple more. <laughs> this next story, we're wrapping up 2020 here. Uh, this is interesting because this was in the COVID-19 relief bill as well. And just like out of nowhere, uh, I'm going to read you the headline here. And not that I, I mean, fuck Fox News, but whatever, it's from them. Uh, coronavirus bill started a 180 day countdown for UFO disclosures. Um, I mean, that just shows how dumb Fox news is, right? Like nobody says UFO anymore. No, I know people still say UFO, but they should say UAPs. Of course, within the article they do. Uh, anyway, link is in the show notes for this, but the bottom line being is that it, there was a, <laughs> I love this, which I, I guess is like earmarks. There was a committee, uh, 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 comment. That's what they call it where it was just kind of like written down in the margins, you know, on, on, on the bill that basically said, um, the, uh, like the C the CIA or well, really, you know, the entire intelligence community within the U S cause that's more than the CIA. Cause I, I think they also said they have to draw from the FBI's, um, evidence stores and so on, but they have to reveal to a congressional committee all of the data they have on you, you know, that, that U S intelligence agencies have on UAPs, like everything that that's, that's apparently the claim. Now that's interesting considering what we were talking about. Uh, I mean, this is just, it feels like more of that setup, right? If you listen to the last episode, when Ellen was on, it was awesome. Uh, if you listen to that and I, and great response from everybody for that episode, I'm, I'm really honored by that. Uh, we might update more um, on that episode as well within this episode, but we'll see. Anyway, uh, the episode we were talking about Project Bluebeam, right? Where you know, like it's it's a whole whole lot of whole lot of fakery. <laughs> but, uh, you know, this claim that these UAPs are aliens and all this other crap that that that's actually a conspiracy in itself and not true. Listen back to that episode if you want to hear more on that, because I give a little bit of history on Project Bluebeam. Anyway, this really kind of sits in with that, in my opinion. Um, but let's be clear here. I don't think that there is any mandate that the committee has to ultimately tell you what they discover from these intelligence agencies. 
You see what I mean? Is that, okay, they have to tell this uh, congressional committee, you know, the CIA, whoever, FBI, whoever else has to, has to tell the congressional committee, but there's no guarantee here that they're going to reveal anything to anybody. Um, and I mean, the, the government has regularly lied even on how, well, for example, what was it? Was it a tip? Was that the, the program that has been running for years and years and years, even though we were told that, uh, after, uh, was it project blue book, right? That, that after that was closed way, way back, like in the sixties, uh, that no, the U S government wasn't researching UAPs anymore. Oh no, no, actually they were <laughs> right. So that's the thing is that there's no real reason that they have to tell you what they find out. So I hear people getting excited about this and the bill is on the up and up. I mean, certainly, you know, people just finding out that this was in the bill, people are going to ask questions. That's going to create pressure and maybe people will reveal some information, but me ultimately, I feel like this information is very suspect. Even if we did get it, uh, I think it'd be very suspect and I wouldn't be surprised. I mean, if it comes out, if I were to believe that the information is real, what I expect the information to say is to talk about varying, um, pretty wild craft that is in the possession of the U S government. That doesn't mean that it's alien at all. And that's, you know, if, if that's what comes out of this and they do actually reveal it, it's probably, you know, tech that's, that's fairly antiquated and so on. I'm just, I'm not expecting a whole lot from this. If there is a whole lot from it, personally, I think it's just playing into, well, like we talked about in the last episode, project Bluebeam. Uh, that's, that's my opinion on it, or it's playing into some kind of political agenda, not a grassroots agenda, uh, whatsoever. And I guess while we're talking about COVID-19, why don't we wrap this one up? Um, you know, it's funny because we kind of know what company, I mean, there are so many, all right, let's say this first. There are so many businesses, especially, you know, smaller businesses and so on that are really, really hurting. Now there are small businesses that are not okay. That are doing very well for themselves as well, but there are small businesses that admittedly, you know, with lockdowns, quarantines, whatever else, um, you know, you get all these people saying it's like, oh yeah, Trump's going to enact martial law. And I'm like, wait, Kind of looks like martial law already around, uh, but anyway, you know, I mean, like, <laughs> you want to talk about freedom when you can't even run your own business? Okay. Anyway, whatever. Uh, so <laughs> bigger conversations. Maybe we'll get into that when we get into our main story. But talking about this, there are certainly plenty of companies that are doing quite well for themselves. Now it's interesting when some of these companies don't admit to it in any way and keep it on, shall we say the DL one of those happens to be Apple. Uh, they are reporting basically record numbers, uh, record, uh, profits, I should say from the app store itself. I'm going to read a little bit here. This is from nine to five Mac full stories in the sh- uh, link is in the show notes. Okay. Um, now this had to get here. Here's, now, granted, I, I know Q4 numbers, you know, there's investor calls that you have where you bring a lot of this out, but there have been separate analytics firms that have done the math on this, in this case, uh, sensor tower. And here I'm going to read uh, from them quote, 2020 has been a record setting year for worldwide spending on mobile apps and games, which passed $100 billion in a single year for the first time ever in November, 2020. This trend continued on Christmas when uh, consumers around the globe spent an estimated $407.6 million across Apple's app store 
and Google Play, according to preliminary, preliminary sensor tower store intelligence estimates. Mobile spending on Christmas comprised 4.5% of the month's total spending so far, which reached approximately $9 billion globally from December 1st to December 27th. The majority of the holiday spending was on mobile games, which climbed 27% from uh, $232.4 million on Christmas 2019 to $295.6 million this year. So the biggest jump was in games, not a surprise, but the, the numbers overall were through the roof with app sales, you know, and, and in-app purchases across the board, not just in gaming. Now you can say, well, of course that makes sense. People probably got a lot of new devices for Christmas and so on. Like, you know, why wouldn't this happen? Maybe a lot of kids, uh, you know, finally just turned, I don't know, whatever age that their parents find it acceptable to hand them smartphones. Even though if it was Silicon Valley parents, they wouldn't give their kids smartphones probably until they're in their twenties. Cause they're, they know better. Uh, sorry. Did I get that in there? Anyway, let's keep going. What I want to point out with this is that with all of that said, I mean, just the, the percentages are so high year over year. What do you suppose? Do you think really that Apple and Google, um, are interested in any way in, you know, a lot of these, like, do you think that when you see these companies coming out and saying, it's like, oh yeah, everybody stay home, everybody, blah, blah, blah. Is that in their best interests, their best business interests or not? Of course it is. You can say that you're glad that these technologies exist so that you could still connect with people. Now, I mean, we can get very almost chicken in the egg about this. You know, like if these technologies didn't exist, would people put up with the quarantines and lockdowns? I wonder. I don't know that they would. Okay. But my point being is that I have a very real concern in that the companies that control a lot of the information out there about a very serious issue, which COVID-19 is okay. I mean, the levels of severity, you know, you want to debate about that fine, but it is a concern. All right. My concern here though, ultimately is that the companies that control the spread of information, not of COVID-19, but the spread of the information about it, have all the financial incentives in the world for the present climate to continue. And I'm, I'm really, really bothered about that. And we are watching as, and, and, you know, zoom could be an answer to this if they don't want to play ball with algorithmically shutting down accounts or the spread of certain information. But we are watching as more and more, Dare I say, I mean, you know, they're private, you could argue they're private companies so they can do what they want. Sure. That's fine. But you know, just from a, from an abstract perspective, very draconian measures, algorithmic measures, shadow banning of, of accounts. And so on. I'm still not convinced that my Twitter account isn't somehow shadow banned. Um, I've seen where people have, even recently in the past couple of months where people have said, Hey, I didn't even know you were still out there. I haven't seen your tweets in years. It's like, what are you talking? Like, you know, I, I, I at least put something out. I don't know. Every day or other day. Uh, what the fuck, you know, like, like, how could you not see? And it's fine. Cause I don't want to live my life on social media, but it's just, I, I do wonder about that anyway, but you're seeing the hammer come down and that there is a very, the funnel is narrowing on what information is allowed to be out there. Okay. And again, cause we're not just talking about Apple here. Cause yeah, the app store saw like, you know, really great heights 
uh, as far as profits go, but the Google play store did as well, you know, and YouTube is pulling in a lot of the same draconian shit as everybody else. Again, I know they're private companies. Okay. I'm not, we're not making arguments in that direction. I'm saying in the abstract. So I see this as, you know, I'm sure most people are like, oh, that's fantastic. Blah, blah, blah. I see this frankly as terrifying because as these companies, I don't want them to now look, I mean, don't confuse me. I don't want them to somehow become like a, you know, a public service and a government service of any kind. So that way, you know, it's not about profit anymore. Yeah. Right. It always still is. But what I want you to consider, and we might get into this more, even with HackSec, what I want you to consider is that how do you, how do you get your news? How do you get your information? Because if you think, because I don't watch CNN or you don't watch Fox news or whatever, you know, pick your poison. If you think somehow that you're getting uh, a, a better perspective of reality online, you know, say on Twitter or on Facebook or whatever the platform happens to be. Oh man, I, I've got a patch of Tiberium to sell you. If you think that <laughs> right from the brotherhood of known, I, you're crazy. Like these companies, they love this. They're making a killing off of this. And you're saying, well, if people don't go to work, can they even afford the apps and the phones and all that? Oh, sure. Because all this shit falls under some kind of crazy subscription model half the time anyway, be it the phone, you know, be it the hardware itself or even the apps and so on. Yeah, you'll be able to make that. Especially if, I don't know, some UBI gets implemented next year. But uh, mm. anyway, they love it. They don't want this to end. Don't I mean, you think they don't want you to be constantly, you know, absolutely terrified. And I'm not saying there isn't a place or room for concern. What's I'm not saying that at all. I'm saying that they want you to be far. They want you to be beyond any kind of rationality because in the end you staying at home, sitting in front of your device, whatever that happens to be is going to make them a goddamn killing. And they've had this, I don't think they planned it because again, you know, we've brought this up before this. It wasn't like this was some kind of plan because Apple's plan specifically was they were trying to create, you know, like these amazing spaces that you would go to and they had to put a halt and close down so much of that. Now it doesn't really hurt their bottom line, especially considering this. Um, and I suppose there's an argument to be made that those could be turned into, uh, hmm, you know, maybe vaccine passport safe spaces. What does that mean? Well, we'll get to that in a second, but I don't think it was, you know, it wasn't some overarching plan. Okay. Uh, th this, this did hurt them for a little while, but now, Oh, I mean, they're just, they're just, they're, they're reaping it in. So <laughs> I, I don't see this as good news, uh, at all. And unfortunately we need to get to our main story. We'll take a little break. Um, I don't have a whole lot of other good news either. But I'll be right back with more Sovereign Tech. Woo! Hey, is Sovereign Tech not enough for you? Well, let me tell you about something you'll never get enough of. No, no, I mean it. We're talking about a radio show and podcast that goes all night long, seven nights a week, three hours a night, 365 days a year, and has been going since the early aughts, baby. I am talking about none other 
than free talk live. It's the show you control. That's right. It's an open phones call in show that is ready for you. And if you're worried that your voice isn't going to get heard, don't be. We are talking about the only libertarian radio show stateside. And not only that, it's also the number 26 talk show in the United States. Start listening now and go ahead and hit that massive back catalog at freetalklive.com. The Golden Stallion guarantees a good time, and you might even find some episodes with me on them when you do. That's freetalklive.com, and we thank them for sponsoring Sovereign Tech. Let's get back to the show. The main story. It is time for the main story. And look, folks, I don't mean a down mean to be a downer, you know, at the end of 2020 here. Um, but, you know, I'm hoping that I'm kind of preparing you for you to consider what to do going into 2021. At least I kind of feel like New Year's resolutions are sort of a dead thing. But, you know, maybe it's time to reconsider, as I have been saying for years. Maybe it's time to reconsider your relationship with varying online services, with where your data goes, with varying devices, maybe time to think about it, considering the climate we're in. And I know a lot of times that I give a solution of, Hey, look, just drop windows and Google, drop all of them and start using Linux. Well, Hmm. Speaking of CNN, I have a story here from CNN business, which its latest update was on December 28th, 2020. So incredibly fresh here. Uh, let me read it. If you want to travel next year, you may need a vaccine passport. And this is by Rishi Iyengar. And now, okay, well, all right, let me, let me read the story and anything that I've said in the past, we can kind of, you know, get in here, but let's read it. Now that uh, coronavirus vaccines are starting to roll out in the U.S. and abroad, many people may be dreaming of the day when they can travel, shop, and go to the movies again. But in order to do those activities, you may eventually need something in addition to the vaccine, a vaccine passport application. Several companies and technology groups have begun developing smartphone apps or systems for individuals to upload details of their COVID-19 tests and vaccinations, creating digital credentials that could be shown in order to enter uh, concert venues, stadiums, movie theaters, offices, or even countries. The Common Trust Network, uh, an initiative by Geneva-based nonprofit The Commons Project and the World Economic Forum, who's uh, banting around the term Great Reset right now, that being the World uh, Economic Forum, hmm, uh, reading on, has partnered with several airlines, including uh, Cathay Pacific, JetBlue, Lufthansa, uh, Swiss Airlines, United Airlines, and Virgin Atlantic, as well as hundreds of health systems across the United States and the government of Aruba, of all things. Um, the Common Pass app created by the group allows users to upload medical data such as COVID-19 test results or eventually a proof of vaccination by a hospital or medical professional, generating a health certificate or pass in the form of a QR code that can be shown to authorities without revealing sensitive information. For travel, the app lists health pass requirements at the points of departure and arrival based on your itinerary. 
quote, you can be tested every time you cross a border. You cannot be vaccinated every time you cross a border, end quote. Thomas Crampton, chief marketing and communications officer for the Commons Project, told CNN Business. He stressed the need for a simple and easily transferable set of credentials or a digital yellow card, referring to the paper document generally issued as a proof of vaccination. Now I can already hear, I'm sure my, uh, some of my libertarian listeners going, uh, you know, all East Germany here and saying papers, please papers, papers. And yep, <laughs> I, I hear you granted. We all need passports to go into other countries and so on. Uh, but mm, this is something else, isn't it? So, uh, credentials, uh, corresponding to those, uh, or let's see, sorry, let me, let me back up here. Uh, large tech firms are also getting in on the act. IBM developed its own app called digital health pass, which allows companies and venues to customize indicators they would require for entry, including coronavirus tests, temperature checks, and vaccination records. Credentials corresponding to those indicators are then stored in a mobile wallet. In an effort to address one challenge around returning to normalcy after vaccines are distributed widely, developers may now have to confront other challenges ranging from privacy issues to representing the varied effectiveness of different vaccines. But the most pressing challenge may simply be avoiding the disjoint, the disjointed implementation and mixed success of tech's previous attempt to address the public health crisis, that being contact tracing apps. Um, now, they give a little bit of a, of a description um, around that and, you know, saying what, what Google and Apple had done previously. Now, I mean, we know that the, um, the contact tracing apps were a rampant failure, just a failure for multiple reasons. And they, those range from, you know, false positives and negatives to, uh, to the fact that like, you'd have to have an 85% install base and look, I don't even think Facebook has an 85% install base. Zoom doesn't even have that right now. You know, how are you going to make that happen to where you have this level of effective effectiveness? And that might speak to this vaccination passport um, as well. But let, let's let's read a little more because, I mean, I didn't even get into the privacy concerns, sort of what they're, they're hinting at uh, here in this CNN story. Um, anyway, so, quote, and who's this quote from? Let's see. Quote, I think where exposure notification ran into some challenges was more of the peaceful, piecemeal implementation choices. Lack of federal leadership, uh, where each state had to go it alone, and so each state had to figure it out independently, end quote, said Jenny uh, Wanger, who leads the exposure notification initi initiatives, wait for it, I'm going to say it again, exposure notification initiatives for Linux Foundation Public Health, a tech-focused organization helping public uh helping public health authorities around the world combat COVID-19. And I can imagine already what you're thinking. Let's read a little more. Uh, to encourage better coordination this time, the Linux Foundation has partnered with the COVID-19 Credentials Initiative, a collective of more than 300 people representing dozens of organizations across five continents, and is also working with IBM and Common Pass to help develop a set of universal standards for vaccine credential apps. I, I want to get in the next quote. We, yes, we're going to talk about what the fuck is the Linux foundation doing with this? Let's, and it is, I know you're saying, well, it's Linux foundation, public health. It's part of the Linux foundation. Let's keep going. Quote. If we're successful, you should be able to say, 
I've got a vaccine certificate on my phone that I got when I was vaccinated in one country with a whole set of its own kind of health management practices that I used to get on a plane to an entirely different country. And then I presented, uh, and then I presented in that new country a vaccination credential so I could go to the con- that concert that was happening indoors for which attendance was limited to those who have demonstrated that they've had the vaccine and quote said, Brian Bellendorf executive director of the Linux foundation. Now I get what they're doing. They want it to be interoperable. They want it to be something that works across the board. Okay. Uh, you know, regardless of, because what, you know, part of what the story is claiming, okay. Is that, well, the contact tracing apps, everybody made their own and nobody knew which one to install. And it just turned into a massive clusterfuck. I'm, I am glad. Okay. For the privacy concerns alone coming from me personally, the golden stallion, but for varying other reasons as well, because it is in and of itself a failed idea. I know it's something that gets done even without apps and smartphones, but it's a failed idea ultimately based upon, and it's failed based upon what its metrics of success are. So it's not like it's just a failure in my mind. It's a failure based upon its own metrics of success. Now there's more to the story and links are in the show notes. Okay. But the Linux foundation getting in on this, let's be clear about this. That's not a surprise. Why? Because most governments are switching. And we've talked about this for a good couple of years now. They are switching away from windows, right? And they are implementing Linux. Um, you have Linux phones, which are becoming very pot, which are actually becoming kind of popular. Uh, ironically to get away, I, I think they've become popular. There's a couple of reasons that these kinds of phones have become popular that Linux phones have. Uh, part of it is, you know, because maybe at a hardware level, they're made, uh, what some would consider to be more ethically or sustainably. Um, the other is that they probably want to get away from the duopoly of Apple and Google. And maybe they even want to get away from this concern around contact tracing. Ironically, ha ha. It'll be right in the Linux kernel or well, not contact tracing, but this, this vaccine passport will be two different, two very different things. I want to be clear about that. Um, but this certainly does raise, uh, concerns around if you thought the Linux phone was a viable alternative, um, you know, to get away from something like this in relation to COVID-19 and another big part of it too. I mean, understand like, they keep mentioning IBM. IBM is a really key force and figure here for many reasons. One of them being is that look, red hat is, I mean, has been, and is increasingly becoming a more and more dominant force in the enterprise space, especially as an enterprise, not just in government, but in enterprise as well. A lot of companies are leaving windows behind and a lot of them are switching to red hat, which has been for the past few years now owned by IBM. Now, IBM's claim that they have a system, this part was actually positive and interesting, not in relation to a vaccine passport. Okay. But this, they're not kidding about this because I've talked, in fact, I'm the only, as far as I know, I'm the only tech show that's talked about this. IBM, 15, almost 15 years ago now, they developed a identity, a digital identity system called Identity Mixer. This is back in 2007. And this system was specifically designed so that you did not have to give a 
all of your information at once to say, gain entry into, in fact, they ironically with no sign of COVID in sight. Uh, well, depending upon how you want to look at that, but, <laughs> uh, but regardless, anyway, you know, without COVID-19 specifically, they were thinking about, okay, how do you allow, uh, say a young person to get access to a rated R movie? So they were thinking about using, uh, you know, digital ID to get into movies back then. Now, the thing is, is that I, interestingly, they had the right idea at the time. I'm going to give credit where it's due. They had the right idea. So when they say that, that their ID system is only designed to give specific information, they're not wrong because they developed what was called identity mixer. Again, this is back in 2007 An identity mixer didn't even like, so if a kid wanted to get into a rated R movie and they needed to be at least 16 years old. Here's the beauty is that the identity mixer system had privacy as such a core that it wouldn't say it, it wouldn't give like, say at the, at the movie theater, it wouldn't give your birth date. It would say, yes, it, all it would say was this person is older than 16. It would give very general information that was enough to qualify to get in. It was not specific information. And that's the right move. Like if you're going to do digital ID, if. Now, one could argue, and, and I certainly have on this show in the past, it's it's almost a sovereign tech axiom, ideas for cattle. And yes, it is. Um, but if you're going to do it, like this is how you do it. In fact, it's almost an anti-ID because, yeah, it's giving you a range, but it's only giving you the, you know, what allows for the lowest default risk. And that's the direction you want to go. It should be as vague as it could be. You, there's no requirement for, you know, to have th that very specific information, right? So in effect, IBM could kind of do this right. But then the idea that you need a specific vaccine to be able to just go see a movie obviously is anathema to most people, on, I think, on the planet. Uh, and we, we could get into a big conversation around that because, okay, well, if you look online, it seems like everybody's ready to get that vaccine or everybody's wanting everybody to get a vaccine or whatever. Yeah. But then when you get into the real world and especially outside of cities, different scenario, but obviously the, the key piece of information here or, or the, the, the key concern here, I should say for me really comes, I mean, yeah, the vaccine passport is, that's a problem in and of itself. Um, you know, I got, I got reminded by a, a awesome sovereign tech listener. Uh, <laughs> and he, he shared a, a Bruce Schneier quote and I thought it was just brilliant. And, and the Bruce Schneier quote is it is poor civic hygiene to install technologies that could someday facilitate a police state. And I mean, boy, you want to talk about a technology that could facilitate a police state right now to talk about this a little broader. I mean, it, it makes, you know, just red hat alone. And, and you have to understand the, the, the real power I think that red hat has, which again is owned by IBM. And this does speak to the concern around, oh shit, you know, IBM owning red hat. Is there going to be any kind of problem there? Well, maybe this is kind of leading towards that. I know I'm being a little bit vague in that, but my point being is that Linux, especially in the 5g future, which we have. I would argue debunked, you know, as, as a, or basically said, it's a bad idea. Okay. Uh, and debunked a lot of the marketing around it in the 5g future. There are Linux devices everywhere. 
Okay. And that was planned before COVID-19 was a thing. All right. There's a reason that Microsoft has been licensing Linux to so many different devices and so on. Linux is everywhere. And so, you know, for, for if this idea of a vaccine of a digital vaccine passport, if that is going to be decided by varying governments and whoever else to be a part of the future, then of course it's going to be baked into the Linux kernel. You know, I mean, it's, it's just, it's good. It's going to be part and parcel. Now, am I saying stop using Linux? No, I'm, I'm not saying that. Okay. Uh, because also, I, I mean, this is bullshit that, that they're baking this kind of thing into the kernel of what is, you know, such an important operating system, because when you start putting these kinds of things in, I mean, it's just opening up for shit to go wrong in my opinion. Uh, and it, and it's reactionary, which part of what I love about Linux is that it's not really reactionary. Like changes are slow. They do not come in quickly. This is kind of a, a new, a new trend for Linux development, in my opinion. For example, I mean, like the, the latest uh, Linux kernel, is it, is it 510 that's coming out or 5.8 or 5.10? The, the latest Linux kernel, I, I think this is so hilarious. They just added in the uh, compatibility for, uh, for using the Sega Saturn controller. And I'm like, in 2020, <laughs> the Sega Saturn came out, you know, 25 years ago. Like, what the? You finally got around to adding in uh, for the controller. I mean, and it's funny that it's that specific controller. I mean, there's, I, we can imagine reasons why now, you know, due to mode and everything else, but it's just, it's ironic, you know, and, but that's how slow, right. That, that Linux development usually is. And so this is certainly a shift and, uh, you know, does this come from IBM's influence and some of the money that that's, I mean, does it come from Microsoft being such a, like a platinum sponsor to the Linux foundation? Are there pressure? Is there pressure coming in from the money people? Yeah, probably. Uh, I'm sure that that's part of it. I am not going to say to like, stop using Linux because of this. If you want to go so far as that and get comfortable with free BSD or open BSD, maybe not a bad idea, but as I understand it, this is something to the effect of, I mean, and, and you have to understand too, with Linux, I feel like if, if it gets found out that this is so egregious, I mean, I disagree with it from the get go. Okay. That's not being me being an anti-vaxxer at all, by no means, by no means. Okay. I am just saying that I don't agree with this because I don't think that this kind of thing has any place in general computing. It has no place in that. But I would not be surprised if someone forks the Linux kernel, if, if we find out that this is terribly egregious. Um, I mean, as far as the vaccine passports in general, uh, you know, something I want to warn about, in fact, it's kind of an update from something I discussed. So I discussed when, and, and the concerns, and they're very similar for the vaccine passport I discussed in, uh, oh boy. I mean, it was a few episodes ago. It would have been back in June, I think of 2020 episodes from back then where I talked about the new planet fitness app, because in New Hampshire, uh, we were able to go to the gym again back in June. Um, I know other places, gyms are still shut down. I can't believe that. Uh, gyms, in my opinion, are an essential service. Like it is gyms are as important as hospitals. I, it, it is. 
and, and that's not anything new. I said this back in, back in March of this year, you can go back to the episodes when I started talking about COVID-19 and I made it abundantly clear that the last thing you want is for gyms to close for, for a multitude of reasons. I mean, we can pull out all the stats in the world. Like what's the number one indicator for contracting COVID-19 or for, uh, for potential for COVID-19 being lethal, uh, is having a BMI of 30% or higher. How do you resolve that? Yeah. Have some fucking gyms open. I mean, that's part of it. And you can't say, well, work out at home, blah, blah, whoa, whoa, whoa. You try and get equipment <laughs> for home. That ain't happening. <laughs> I, I know I've been trying to get some 45 pound plates, uh, Olympic plates, and I can't even now, but regardless, um, the planet fitness app. So I talked about this back then where they, they didn't want you, they wanted you to use the app to sign in now and the app eventually went to, so at first they had a barcode and it was basically a digital version of the like key tag barcode that you always had with you. You know, that was just, you know, in real space, right. In meat space. Um, and then it switched uh, a couple months ago, it switched to a QR code. Um, in fact, an interesting thing. So, <laughs> you know, we talk about how apps like apps having control of say the light sensor, because this was a, a newer feature that came out for both, uh, iOS devices as well as Android phones. And everybody was freaking out. Like, why do they want access to the, uh, you know, to the light sensor? Like, that's crazy. Even websites can get access to the light sensor on your smartphone. Well, now we can kind of see the reason, okay. That, 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 you know, was a thing. I mean, aside from, you know, I know people have privacy concerns around that and I share them. And of course you're always welcome to just cover that baby right up. If you have some kind of, you know, with a sticker, if you have those kinds of concerns, um, I also sometimes wonder if that's why we're getting rid of bezels so that you can't just cover up the smartphone and the sensors very easily with stickers. But that's me getting a little conspiratorial Not that I haven't done that a plenty in this episode already. And I don't say that as pejorative, but go, uh, anyway, so something that that's interesting is that now the, so if you, you know, if you have a, like just a, a very, very simple, uh, scanner, okay. Uh, you know, laser scanner, right? That would scan a barcode or in this case, a QR code um, on the screen. It has to be, if it's low brightness, that little laser scanner is not going to be able to pick it up. Okay. It's not going to be able to scan it. So the planet fitness app will automatically brighten the screen to full brightness while the QR code is up. Okay. Uh, and so now we have some understanding of, okay, why would an app need brightness control and all these other things? Well, there are quote unquote legitimate and I put that in quotes, legitimate reasons, um, as to why now it was interesting because when they switched to the QR code, and this is what I want to bring up, they did something else because I think what a lot of people are going to say is, is that, well, I'll just, um, you know, I'll, I'll just, uh, uh, uh take a screenshot of <laughs> somebody's, you know, vaccine passport QR code, because that's what it looks like in the CNN business article is that it would just be a QR code. And I can use that and we can all share it and we can get access and we don't have to take the vaccines. No, 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 no. They're, they're not going to let you get away with that. Okay. And I just want to be clear on that. And I'm not saying like, I love your idea, but it's just, they're not, they're not going to let you get away with that. Because like now, for example, with the planet fitness app, what they do is, is there is, there are moving gears behind the QR code. There's like animated gears. And like I said, they could always like, they could just, update that QR code over and over again. When we were talking about this, when I initially did the review of the new planet fitness app 
And people are like, what are you doing talking about the planet? What does the planet fitness app matter to me? Because it's a preview really of like vaccine passports and of what this looks like when you need to have a smartphone to get access to places. Okay. But they're putting in a lot of little features. It's just like, you know, adding, I don't know, little holograms and strips and whatever to money so that you can't, or so that you quote unquote, can't counterfeit it, even though ultimately all money besides basically gold or Bitcoin might as well be counterfeit. But (laughs) regardless, yeah, I mean, this is a preview of things to come. So they're already putting in like very simple measures to thwart whatever you think you're going to do to, you know, somehow subvert this. Uh, and I found that to be very interesting, you know, that, that they added that in, it's clearly a security feature. It's not to look cool. It's there so that a worker can say, Oh, Hmm, that's a screenshot. That's not actually the app rolling. Now, another important thing to consider though, is that I found out planet fitness is not actually requiring you. You like, you can still use the key tag. It's not requiring you to use the app. Um, even though the language that they were saying certainly back in June was that you were required to start using the app to log in. Um, that is not true. And that speaks to an ultimate problem here. And it's one, in fact, that the CNN story does highlight is that you have at the least millions and millions and millions of people who do not have a smartphone. Okay. And that, you know, and, and probably might not even have a, a Linux computer for fuck's sake. You know, if you're, if you're thinking that you could use a Linux computer to somehow sign in, I mean, that computer would have to be connected to the internet somehow, you know, it'd have to be an anywhere PC or whatever, or like a modern Chromebook, which I guess would make sense. But regardless, okay. Um, you, you have that problem and that's really where those are the cracks. You know, I talk about all the time that even in the worst dystopia, okay, as long as there are cracks, we can find ways to live in them and live rather freely and, and, and perhaps even very, you know, thrive and, you know, thrive in them and, and, and live enjoyably. Uh, that's where the cracks will be. And I just, I cannot imagine, like, there's really no way they're going to be able to force this across the board. It's going to be a pain in the ass and it may keep you from having either a lot of fun or maybe even a really good job or other things, uh, or getting higher education. I mean, like there's, there's a laundry list of things that it may interfere with, but ultimately I don't know that we're ever going to be able to live. Like, I don't know if there's ever going to be this future where everybody has a fucking smartphone, just everybody. You know, in fact, right now, I think that there is a very strong sentiment of people getting away from smartphones for varying reasons. And you just need enough people to make a stink about not having one. And all of this can, can very easily fall apart. I'm reminded of, you know, the old quote, uh, the best laid schemes of mice and men. <laughs> meaning that even the best laid plans can go wildly astray. And this is a really key thing to understand as well, is that I, I'm hearing so many people. Uh, actually, our next story is going to speak to this really well. That has to do with T-Mobile. But I'm hearing so many people say that, and we're, and we we're just talking about it, how like there's algorithms shutting down so much information shutting down accounts, you know, and, and, and all this, and it's all very draconian and blah, blah, blah. I mean, you have to understand like the, 
their moves. And I guess I should have said this earlier, but like what Facebook and Twitter does, it has to be broad, have a lot of, uh, uh, false positives as it were, or false negatives. It has to be draconian because these platforms, I mean, again, even just the websites to say nothing of the internet in general, you know, the interconnected world in general, these platforms talk about beasts that can't be tamed. They have become so complex. They're not artificial intelligence, but in many ways they've taken on a life of their own and Facebook can't even control its own beast. You know, and a lot of people have realized that in the past few years, like Facebook can't control it. There's times, you know, when Zuckerberg fuck him. Uh, but when he's getting grilled by Congress, you know, in the U S and he's saying, hey, no, we can't do that. I think he's actually, you know, he's lying a lot, but at that, in those instances, I think he's right. When he says he can't do that, I think he's lost fucking control of his own monster. And so as much as you think that, oh, you know, they, they're collecting all this data and they're tracking us and blah, and, and they are, and you don't certainly don't want to help out in the situation. Understand at the same time that there will always be cracks to, to, to live in and to escape to, because the more complex their systems, uh, the more cracks appear. What, what's the old saying, right? Another old saying, uh, actually <laughs> princess Leia said it to governor or, you know, to grand Moff Tarkin, uh, you know, the more you, the more you tighten your grip, uh, the more things slip through your fingers basically. And I, I think that's quite true. So don't think that somehow all of this is as depressing as all of this might be. Don't think that it's somehow the end. There are plenty of ways. And we live in a very, I, again, I, we live in a golden moment. I think where a lot of people are questioning a lot of things. And that can go two ways that, or, I mean, it can go more than two ways, but at least two ways that it can go, it can lead to more tyranny or ironically, it could lead to more freedom. But I think it's important to make for you who are on the bleeding edge of what's going on to make the choices that express more freedom for you. And for other people to see, you know, because I know, Hey, look, I've gotten to know a lot of you people, uh, not, I mean, nowhere near as, I mean, there's thousands of the, you know, I, I, I get whatever over 20,000 listeners on average per episode. I don't know. I don't know a 10th of you. Okay. But I do know a lot of you and you're some of the coolest people on planet earth. <laughs> I mean, you really are. You're so goddamn cool. And I love you. And I think a lot of other people love you. And if you just come out of nowhere and say, oh yeah, I don't do this. Oh yeah, no, I don't have a smartphone. Like, I think that'll be shocking to people, but they won't think you're nuts because they're like, yeah, but he's so damn cool. Or she's so damn cool. And then maybe they want to be cool like you. And you start uh, a little peaceful technical or, you know, tech revolution. And that turns into more of a, uh, an, an enlightening, uh, a mentally and, you know, enlightening evolution. Or, or yeah, it's an evolution actually. That's all it takes. You can say no to some of this stuff right now. And I think we should. I'll be right back with some more sovereign tech. We've got another story that has to do with, ironically, smartphones. Woo.
space, no one can hear you scream. Alien, rated R from 20th Century Fox. Issues of privacy, security, and social engineering. It's HackSec. It is time for HackSec. And, uh, well, <laughs> 2020 has had some final parting gifts. And if you're a T-Mobile user, has it got a doozy for you? Um, I hope you hear the sarcasm. Let's read it here from Android Police. Uh, T-Mobile rounds out this awful year with another data breach affecting hundreds of thousands of subscribers. The cherry on top of the stupid Sunday that's as magenta as it could be. <laughs> Anyway, let's read it. Uh, T-Mobile has confirmed uh, to Android police it has shut down a data breach operation that may have harvested a small group of customers' phone numbers, number of lines per account, and call diagnostic metrics. Customers who may have been affected were alerted via text message yesterday and told that the event took place in November. The company tells us that hackers did not have access to any names associated with the account, financial data, credit card information, social security numbers, passwords, pins, or physical or email addresses. Um, while most of this, uh, most of the worrisome stuff has been, uh, accepted here or as in like not part of it, uh, those call diagnostic metrics, uh, customer proprietary network information as defined by the FCC can and may include call location data, such as tower IDs and even granular information from your device, like maybe even your IMEI number. Uh, on the whole, though, it appears that the scale of the impact, both in terms of severity and range, is relatively minimal uh, this time around. Anyway, I want to I want to skip down because they did an update. Here it is for scope of breach. Curious why uh, you haven't gotten an alert yet. T-Mobile has because maybe you use T-Mobile and they didn't tell you that you were part of this breach. Uh, T-Mobile has provided slightly more detail about just how many users were affected by this breach, giving us a clearer picture of its scope. The carrier reports that the breach involved a, quote, small number of customers less than 0.2%, end quote. Well, while that may seem <laughs> like a small number, uh, T-Mobile has about 100 million active subscribers in the United States. So do a little math here. 0.2%, carry the one. That adds up to about 200,000 people. I, well, well, relatively that's small for T-Mobile, that's not a small amount of people. If 200,000 people, uh, you know, had their data stolen, um, that's bad. <laughs> I mean, it's bad when it happens to one, but you get into the six digits. That's really bad. What it, it it's only statistically relevant. If it's a million, that's horrible marketing downplaying by, by T-Mobile on, on their part. I mean, that's just, just bullshit on their part. So now this, uh, you know, they're trying to say, well, no credit card numbers, none of this stuff, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. But the metadata alone that a cell phone puts out there as we have covered over and over again on sovereign tech, uh, is enough to identify someone is enough to identify all kinds of things and enough to do some very serious damage to someone's life. If need be, um, this is not okay. Uh, now I'm bringing this up because it is one of those cases where it doesn't appear for anything negative to have happened. Okay. But it is ultimately a serious breach. One that T-Mobile is not making abundantly clear how exactly it went down. Um, and so my argument 
And the reason that I'm bringing it up during HackSec is that here is a, you know, talking about rethinking your relationship with your data and with devices for 2021. I want you to rethink. I mean, again, fortunately, all right, real quick, fortunately, contact tracing, you know, didn't really take off on smartphones. Okay. Because, you know, the ability to, to get this kind of data and act, there, there could have been real problems there. Okay. Where that level of information being collected by a contact tracing app absolutely could have been part of this. And who knows what that could have led to not good. So the reevaluation I want you to go through is I want you to consider your smartphone being as dumb as fucking possible going into 2021. Meaning I want you to have as few apps as possible. I want you to log in with his, you know, just as few things as you possibly can use it for as little as possible. Uh, we've talked many times over the past couple of years, especially about separating your devices, having a separate device that handles your entertainment and all that don't have it all in one. My point being is that this was a high level network telco network attack. Okay. We're not just talking about servers somewhere. I mean, it is ultimately, but you get my point. This was a high level telco network attack. And the more you do on a smartphone that connects to T-Mobile's network and that sends data to T-Mobile, the more damage could effectively be done to you when this kind of breach happens. And so I really want you to consider how much you're doing with this persistently connected device. Uh, I want to, I want to give a little credit to the love of my life. I want to give a little credit to Ellen. I'll give her a lot of credit actually but I want to give her credit. It's amazing. There are times when we're driving somewhere and only one of us, you know, say we'll have uh, you know, maps open or whatever for GPS and everything. And certainly there's ways you can mitigate that. You could go buy a Garmin or something, but regardless, I know often enough uh, that she will turn off the data connection on her phone when it's not necessary. Now you could say, well, they, they're still collecting from mine. Yeah. I mean, you, you can make that argument, but I think getting in that habit of, Hey, when I don't need that data connection on, I'm fucking turning it off is the right habit to have. Uh, and, and I think that's absolutely brilliant of her, you know? And so these are the kind of reevaluations that I really think we want to go forward with next year. Um, because certainly handing over an orgy of data to the government or to telcos or to all these companies has not improved things. It, it, it hasn't right. <laughs> because all of it can get turned around. Kind of like the Bruce Schneier quote where it can, you know, enforce a police state, all of it can get turned around overnight to turn into a nightmare. And so if you don't need it, don't use it that way. If you can turn it off, turn it off. I, it is really time to rethink this stuff because, you know, I mean, be it the Twitter hack happening, be it this T-Mobile breach, which you could consider to be, well, it didn't affect a lot of people. Yeah, but it was so high level in the network. That's not good. That should absolutely be causing you to reconsider this. Or if you're thinking, holy fuck, I'm getting out of the United States. I know I hear that from a lot of people. Well, let me tell you about the fun that happens at the border with your smartphone. 
I mean, and again, if there's a large enough amount of people that make, you know, even that make such a stink, well, I don't have a smartphone. Right. And I mean, this certainly bolsters that, that desire, like, well, I don't want this shit happening at such a high level, you know, and for it to affect me. If you raise enough stink about that, I mean, then it becomes, we don't, the problem is, is that it's normalized that everybody always has a smartphone with them. That's normalized now. And that is allowing for a lot of dastardly shit to affect the individual. And if we're going to have smartphones, you know, if, if they're inevitable or people really do desire them, okay. But then there's really no need for them to be a consistent part of our, you know, of our person and always with us. There is no need for that. And that's what I want to get reconsidered. Okay. Uh, the, not enough people are talking about this T-Mobile breach because again, it's, it's really massive just how high it was, you know, just how effective it was. Even if it didn't ultimately affect a lot of people, it could have been infinitely worse. So we'll wrap up HackSec with that, but I just want you to walk away from this, from everything we've been saying this whole episode and really reconsider your devices how often, you know, how persistent that you're using them, how persistent, you know, their connection is and so on. Reconsider all of it. Think, how can I tighten up this ship for 2021? You know, the ship of your life and your data. Think about it. I'll be back with more Sovereign Tech and maybe we can have a little bit of fun. Hey, baby, I know, I know you are tired of Gmail. You have had enough. Well, I have a solution for you. What I want you to do is you go to Fastmail, okay? It's fastmail.sovereigntech.com. That's the URL you can use. You're going to get a discount with that. You are going to love this. This is email for email's sake. This company does nothing more. Just email and they do it right. All the latest security technologies you want to log into your account with your YubiKey, you can do that. Fastmail has your hookup. Very inexpensive plans. I want you to check it out. You go to fastmail.sovereigntech.com. That'll get you the hookup. And it's an honor to have them as a part of Sovereign Tech. Woo, let's get back to the show. The Golden Stallion doing whatever he wants to do. The Climax. It is time for the Climax, where I get to talk about whatever the hell I want to talk about. And you know, I, I, I hinted at this earlier on. Um, I want to play off of the conversation that Ellen and I were having because we finally uh, got to watch. So we we opened up last week's show with talking about Bob Lazar, okay, who is, uh, you know, a guy who supposedly worked at S4, which was kind of a part of Area 51, blah, blah, blah. Um, and he claims to have seen UAPs, kind of like we were talking about earlier. Um, or he, you know, he claims to have seen like these, uh, uh, you know, varying flying saucers. Right. Uh, and he, you know, went to the hangar, saw them all. He worked on them, uh, or he was working on their propulsion system, blah, blah, blah. Anyway, this guy, so kind of what got him back on the radar as it were, was he did an interview with Joe Rogan. Now, Ellen and I reviewed his biography, um, quasi autobiography, I guess. But anyways, biography, we, because it's speaking in the first person, but I'm pretty sure he had a ghostwriter. Anyway, 
we reviewed that. It's called Dreamland. Uh, in the last episode of Sovereign Tech, that was episode 398. Woo, 399, baby. Um, and after that, I was like, well, you know, and I, so I eventually finished the book. Ellen had finished the book by this, by that time I finished the book. Then I went and listened to the Joe Rogan interview, which is kind of what re-sparked. Well, it wasn't just the Joe Rogan interview. The Joe Rogan interview led to some pretty interesting things like the storm area 51 stuff, whatever. Uh, but the Joe Rogan interview happened after a documentary, uh, came out about Bob Lazar which was called Bob Lazar area 51 and flying saucers. Um, and I think that that came out in like 2018, that documentary it's made by a guy named, uh, Jeremy Corbell, who was also on the Joe Rogan interview. Uh, then there was another interview on, on Joe Rogan with George Knapp, who wrote the forward to the book dreamland, who is the guy that initially interviewed, uh, Bob Lazar back in 89, which is when area 51, like first kind of came on the map for a lot of people. I mean, well, anyway, you, you can listen to last week's episode to know more about that conversation. Bottom line being is that I finally, you know, I, I finished the book. I listened to the Joe Rogan interviews, which I thought that those were particularly the Bob Lazar interview was actually pretty good. Um, and the George, the George Knapp interview, there were some interesting things with that. In fact, it was interesting that they base that Bob Lazar basically has, you know, back kind of, uh, backstepped a bit from the idea that it, that. Oh no, there's aliens. There's aliens. There's aliens. Like he's, he's kind of walked back from that a little bit, uh, which I thought was, was very interesting. Um, it was interesting to learn, particularly from the Joe Rogan interview that apparently he makes no profits from any of this stuff. It all goes to like local. And I think he's in Michigan. It all goes to like local science clubs and projects and everything. Like it's, it's not something where, where he makes a profit, uh, which I think that that speaks pretty well of him. Um, I am inclined to believe basically I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to give it to you here straight. I am inclined to believe that Bob Lazar saw something and could have been working at, you know, something relative to area 51. I don't think that aliens have been to earth. I have, I have a longstanding unchanging stance on that. Okay. Um, in fact, I actually got some very interesting emails from sovereign tech listeners that I, I really, I want to respond to, uh, because I mean, like, like people, you know, sharing kind of their stories around the, around the Bob Lazar story. Amazingly, uh, really, really interesting stuff, but I am inclined to believe that he did see or work on something as far as the origin of that something. In fact, he spends George Knapp and Bob Lazar, when they're talking with Joe Rogan, do spend some time more so than the book does or even the documentary does. And I want to talk about the documentary here, uh, talking about the idea of these flying, of some flying saucers coming from archeological digs. Now that gets really interesting. Very, very interesting. He doesn't say necessarily where these archeological digs were, but that it, it, it could have, you know, these things, some of these things could be ancient. Um, and, and, and that's something I'd love to hear explored more, but so the, you know, cause that, that adds into, you know, sort of what I was saying in the last episode where I'm like, yeah, well, I'm open to like there being ancient advanced technology from earthlings, whatever shape those take, you know, uh, and I, I'm particular in saying earthlings and not necessarily humans or homo sapiens. Um, you know, I'm, I'm open to that. Uh, aliens. No, I'm not because <laughs> I mean, you have to bring in so much more evidence at that point as to where I think it's very, it's actually not hard 
to believe a chunk of, of Bob Lazar's story. But as soon as you bring in aliens, then there is so much more that you have to prove that I, in my opinion, it becomes a real issue to, to take it, uh, you know, at, remotely at face value. So I watched the documentary, the interviews, I, the book, the interviews. I mean, I think you get a very compelling picture and the interviews ultimately do, you know, they did with Rogan do Bob Lazar a lot of favors, I think. Um, and they're, and they're interesting to listen to the, I mean, there's conclusions that Rogan makes in those that I think are just, just bonkers, but whatever that, that, that doesn't necessarily have to do with Bob Lazar. Uh, the documentary on the other hand by Jeremy Corbell, uh, I thought was horrible. Uh, Ellen and I watched it and it is just the weird. It's like, and I don't know, maybe this is a thing because I haven't watched Netflix in forever, uh, other than, you know, Castlevania or Voltron legendary defender. Maybe this is a popular thing on Netflix to just make everything so that it, uh, it, it, like it's visually appealing to people who are constantly high or on some other substance because <laughs> it was just, I mean, the, the, the documentary played out like an LSD trip and, and my problem with that. And then like they had Mickey Rourke narrating it, but he was saying all this weird ass shit, you know, Mickey Rourke's got a one in a million voice. Um, so I understand why you'd want to go with him. Uh, but the whole thing just came off as like really, really odd. And, and here's the problem. The reason I don't think it does any favors and it actually makes the entire Bob, Bob Lazar story. Interestingly do multiple steps backwards. I suppose it depends on what order you encountered the Bob Lazar story. Right. Uh, but I feel like it takes it back so many steps because you, you usually only put in that much style when you don't have a lot of substance. That's not always true. Okay. Because I also, I think like, you know, the band kiss my favorite band ever, right? Well, you know, it's parallel between them and Chicago. Uh, you know, I, I think that a lot of people give the, you know, levy that claim against them that they're all style and no substance. I, I don't think that's true in their case, but it is true that often enough, yes, people will use style to cover up uh, a lack of substance. And this, this documentary was somehow like almost two hours long. There was no need for that. There's great information that you could have easily gotten out in 45 minutes and they waste a ton of time. And they, it felt like Jeremy Corbell was trying to get Bob Lazar to admit that like, there's some kind of new kind of physics out there as to where really, you know, Bob Lazar is just saying, no, this thing element 115. Uh, yeah. It, you know, it, it seems to bend the laws of physics, but it still basically plays in them. And, and Jeremy Corbell just really seemed to be like leading him and definitely leading him in that direction with aliens, which is why I was glad that, really both dreamland and the Joe Rogan interviews kind of backpedaled from that. Like I said, regardless, uh, yeah, it's just, it, it was, it was such a, such an odd looking, uh, uh, documentary and it didn't come off as very professional. And I think that ultimately hurts Bob Lazar because it makes him seem incredibly unprofessional and not easy to believe because there's all this crap. And it's funny too. You know, we were just talking about T-Mobile with, with the, the, the phone breach. Uh, the claim is in the documentary that there is an FBI. I mean, and this is true. There was an FBI raid. Actually, there's multiple FBI raids that, uh, apparently that, that Bob Lazar had to deal with as I've come to understand. Uh, but the, the more recent one apparently came after the claim is, is that like he was, uh, uh, Jeremy Corbell took him out into the woods with a camera 
and started asking him about element 115. Like, do you have it? Or at least that's what it appeared that it was going to be. And then suddenly like they stop and they, cause they're doing this weird thing with the documentary. They suddenly stop and say, Hey, Hey, let's, uh, let's go toss our smartphones away. Why do we have our smartphones with us? Because, you know, Jeremy Corbell rightfully is saying, Oh shit, they could be, you know, who knows what could be listening in with their smartphones. And, but they already, you know, supposedly Bob Lazar already shared some kind of secrets while wearing the smartphones. And then the FBI shows up. And despite the, like the stupidity around that, and there's a, there's definitely a big conversation to be had there. Uh, I mean, it's a mistake that I guess you could argue anybody could make, but you know, it's not a mistake you can make if you change your relationship with your smartphones, right folks. Hmm. But just everything around this documentary from the presentation style to the way that information was, I would argue, ultimately mismanaged and so on just hurts the story. <laughs> it just, it, it doesn't make sense. And yet there's questions, um, that still, you know, around, uh, some questions of, uh, authenticity around Bob Lazar that are still up in the air and that the, the documentary doesn't exactly answer. Okay. And I want to be conscious of those. Um, but yeah, it really, this, this, this is, this is one of the worst documentaries I've ever seen. And that might kind of hurt things. I don't, I don't know, because I could imagine where, you know, based upon things that we talk about on this show that, uh, that Jeremy Corbell, you know, might, might've wanted, or one of the people, cause apparently he works with a lot of different UFO guys or UAP guys, as it were. Uh, would, would end up wanting to be on sovereign tech or something. And I'm not saying I'm opposed to that, but that might hurt things. But like, I, you know, come on, what happened to the days when you would do a documentary and it'd be a straight shoot, you know, and, and saying like, here's the information, think what you will. It really, really plays into, you know, th this whole idea that all of these, because this is ultimately a Netflix, I'm sure Netflix had a lot of say in, in what this documentary would basically look like. And that so many of these companies, they basically, especially tech companies, and that's ultimately what Netflix is now anyway. Um, I mean, they're entertainment too, but they're really a tech company also. It ultimately just goes to show all these companies, they just, they think you're an idiot. They think you're stupid. They think you can't sit through, you know, Cosmos or the day the universe changed or go down the list of, or like some Jacques Cousteau, uh, a documentary or something you know, all these fantastic documentaries that stand the test of time and still get watched to this day because they're so real and serious and visceral in the information that they're bringing to you. It's a pity. I feel like the documentary is just a, just a lost fucking art. And this Jeremy Corbell guy is, it's just making things worse. Again, like the response, the grand response to, you could say it ultimately, ultimately came from this because that's what got caught Joe Rogan's eye. But Joe Rogan's really what put the Bob Lazar story over the top in recent years. It wasn't this documentary. And I, I yeah, again, you know, when you make documentaries like this, you're not adding anything to the mysteries of the universe or the intellect of humankind in, in any way. So I just, I, I felt like it was, it was really, really throwaway. So th there's, there's my review of that. Uh, but again, Ultimately, I do think Bob Lazar really did see something. I'm not saying aliens and me not saying aliens is I'm not going to end that with, but it's aliens. No, I'm saying it's not aliens. Okay. <laughs> like I'm really, really confident of that, but I do, uh, you know, I look at it, I see the info and you know, everything at the end of the day seems like there's something 
there. Now, speaking of something there, I actually want to switch to another story here uh, that has to do about Isaac Newton, of all things, studying the pyramids. Really, really wild. Uh, oh, what the fuck is that? Attention, Agent Sovereign. Attention, Agent Sovereign. Computer, what's going on? Emergency message coming in from Dr. Goldblossom. Dr. Goldblossom? I thought she was on a routine mission in Egypt. What could be going on there? That's the message through, computer. Blossom? Who's there? Miriam, I'm coming. Computer, what happened? Transmission terminated at the source. Location, Giza, Egypt. Should I begin the pre-flight sequence for Red Wolf 2? No, we don't have time for that. I have to get there now. Computer? Power up the prototype dimensional teleporter. Agent Sovereign, the prototype dimensional teleporter has never been used for matter transmission within the same dimension of origin, and has not yet been rated for organic matter. I'm giving you a direct user command, computer. Power up the prototype. I don't care if it couldn't successfully teleport a block of Muscovium in the same universe. I need to get to Dr. Goldblossom now. Teleporter sequence initiating. You may enter the dimensional matter conversion chamber. Agent Sovereign is coming, Dr. Goldblossom. Hopefully I really will see you on the other side. Warning. Warning. Biological subject is not Agent Brian Sovereign. Multidimensional matter conversion scan indicates subject is Commander Brian Soviet. Halting activation and attempting to contact other agents. Warning. Cannot cancel direct user command. No other agents available. Biological subject dimensional matter conversion successful. Tell him. 
Agent Sovereign will return in Soviet Tech 3. Get ready.